Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is pediatrician uh, Dr. Andrew Adisman and author of The Grand Family Guidebook, Wisdom and Support for Grandparents Raising Grandchildren. There are 65 million grandparents in the United States, many of whom are doing a lot more than taking their grandkids out for a fun day at the park and delivering them back home to their parents. Approximately 3 million Americans are the sole caretakers of their grandchildren, and many more will soon be in that same situation, wondering how to raise their children's children. Dr. Andrew Adisman, a board-certified physician in both developmental and behavioral pediatrics and in neurodevelopmental disabilities, explores the main pitfalls of raising a family for the second time around. He's one of Castle Conley's America's Top Doctors and has been recognized repeatedly as a top doctor by New York Magazine, Newsday, and many other publications. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Adisman. Good. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Good morning, Catherine. All right. Well, so let, do we first talk about the statistics? Because uh, right before the show started, you were saying, yes, there are 65 million grandparents in the United States who are taking care of their grandkids, but that, but that's rising. That's on the rise. More and more grandparents are responsible for their grandchildren. Um, what are the reasons? Why? Why are the millions of grand of grand? Are there millions of grand families? I guess the title of the book. Um, what's the phenomena? Why is this happening? So, uh, well, first, just the statistics briefly. Uh, there's just under three million uh, grandparents who are the primary caretakers for their grandchildren, where the parents are not uh, directly involved, um, and that's a, a number that's gone up in recent years. I think that there are a lot of reasons why, uh, in some instances, uh, this happens. Uh, probably the single most common reason is uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, I'm sure all your listeners are aware that there's uh, a huge problem with you know opioid uh, uh, epidemic, um, and in a sense, um, this, the grandparents who are raising these grandchildren, uh, where, where parents are unable to care for the children, either because they're incarcerated, they're possibly on the street, they're not responsible, or possibly even uh, they've passed away, uh, that then the grandparents are often the ones that are stepping up, and, and these children have sometimes been referred to as sort of the opioid orphans. And so the grandparents are some of the unsung heroes in this uh, the war on, on opioids. Um, uh, they're the uns- the right I'm going to interrupt you because you're saying unsung heroes, the grandparents. Yep. But what the first question that pops up in my mind is, well, these are the parents who raise the kids who are on opioids or who are incarcerated, and now they're going to be raising another generation to perpetuate that kind of parenting? Or how does that work? Well, I think sort of implicit in your question is that the pa- the grandparents have done something wrong the first time, and should they be trusted with the grandchild? And and the reality is that you know I don't think it's fair or reasonable to sort of blame the grandparents for the substance abuse problems of their adult children. Uh, we we know that uh, many times, you know, I'm a parent myself, and fortunately, my children uh, aren't uh, opioid addicts. But but the reality is. Even the best of parents can have uh, children that end up, for one reason or another, um, uh, struggling, uh, have mental health issues, and uh, I think that uh, there shouldn't be this sort of you know judgment or presumption that uh, the grandparents uh, or that you know the, the grandparents of the young children 
did a, a poor job the first time and shouldn't be trusted. And I think that the grandparents who are stepping up uh, oftentimes do a wonderful job, and it's the, be- it's the best option, not, not the worst option, but really the best option. I mean, keep in mind uh, that uh, these are individuals who are you know, kinship care, placing uh, young children with family members is generally thought to be best. Uh, it keeps a child connected with his biological family, that there's uh, a genuine love uh, between the grandparents uh, and the grandchild, and to some extent it also maintains a mechanism where the parents can stay involved, albeit not have direct responsibility, and so it facilitates that as well. Yeah, um, I mean, that would be best-case scenario, and, I, and I'm sure that that obviously exists in many cases, but I think also as a social worker, in terms of my perspective, you do have to, I think, maybe look at maybe the other half. I don't exactly know what the statistics are, but some of the grandparents who are taking that responsibility may have to take a look at themselves and their parenting, not blaming them for everything that their children did. I'm I'm not saying that, but, you know, maybe the second time around, it really does make a difference if they are able to understand, um, you know, what went some of the pitfalls or whatever, you know, the the negatives of of raising their own children, at least be able to take a look at yourself if you're going to be raising the next, you know, the second generation. Well, a a couple of thoughts. And and I think, uh, uh, first of all, you know, if for if, and then this is a big if, but, you know, if grandparents perhaps in one way or another uh, weren't optimal parents, and there are no such thing as perfect parents, but if there was something that they didn't do right the first time, certainly this is another chance for them to do uh, better by the grandchild, number one. And, and I think other family members will also uh, step in and, and assist. Uh, keep in mind, uh, the, as you, you mentioned, the term grandfamilies, uh, it's thought of most typically in terms of grandparents, but when you look at children who are in non-parental care, Two-thirds of them who are in, in some sort of kinship placement with another family member, two-thirds with grandparents. One-third of the time, it's with uh, other family members besides grandparents. Um, also keep in mind, in terms of you know, this notion of children uh, being raised by their grandparents, substance abuse by no means is the only cause. I, I did mention it's the most common one, but you know, incarceration for one reason or another, mental health issues, perhaps even something like an extended military service or a military death uh, could be another reason why in some instances uh, grandchildren are going to be placed into the care of their, their grandparents. The other piece, and you know this full well, Catherine, as a social worker, is that you know, there are different kinds of relationships that, uh, can, uh, that grandparents can be in with their grandchildren. It can be an informal placement, but more typically, and what's better typically for the grandparents and the grandchild, is for it to be a, a more formal relationship. And that typically is going to involve some sort of oversight, some sort of supervision, some sort of uh, review of you know, the fitness of the grandparents for playing that role. So as much as I understand your very reasonable question, perhaps common concern that something didn't go right the first time, how do we know it's going to go right the second time? You know, there are safeguards in a place uh, to help make sure that it's uh, a more successful uh, placement and it's in the best interest of the child. 
So what would be some of the other issues besides fitness? I know you mentioned, or it's your co-author, for instance, is parenting her son's son. So you've been sort of, up, I assume, up close and personal with the whole issue, obviously, besides doing your research. Uh, what are some of the issues that happen that grandparents have to cope with the second time around? I mean, I know one of them is, uh, and certainly would could could be isolation, for instance, because they're not really in, necessarily in contact with all the younger parents and younger families. Uh, that may be one of the issues, but I'm, I'm sure there are many. Uh, and there are, and um, I think it, it, you know, raising a child, you know, can uh, pose its challenges and can be demanding and, and can uh, be more work and, and represent more difficulties than, than, than parents or grandparents can anticipate. But I think that there are different circumstances uh, which makes this uh, sort of uh, special uh, and in some ways a little bit more challenging. And let me go through some of those. Uh, First of all, by definition, grandparents are on average obviously older than parents and and the next generation above. And so there's an age difference. and, And with that age difference, there are health issues. So just first and foremost, we know that, you know, grandparents on average are going to have more health issues than parents will. And so this represents one consideration. The health issues are, are not just in terms of the physical health, but also mental health. Um, uh, I've done two different studies looking at grandparents. There's uh, one study where we had over 700 grandparents from around the country provide us uh, insights and feedback around many of the, the challenges and rewards of parenting their grandchildren. And I include many of these results both, you know, statistically as well as anecdotally within the book itself, within uh, the Grand Family Guidebook. The second study, uh, I'll be presenting those results uh, three weeks from now at a national pediatric meeting, and that data um, is a little bit larger sample, and most importantly, most importantly, it contrasts 1,250 parenting grandparents with roughly 44,000 parents. So we were able to take data from the CDC, we were able to take government data, nationally representative data, and look at uh, grandparents who are raising grandchildren versus parents. And as I said, a higher incidence of health issues, both physical and mental health. We know that on average, uh, you know, parenting grandparents tend to be less affluent, they have greater financial challenges. We know that um, actually both groups of parents, but especially this is the case for grandparents raising grandchildren, that they, have, they don't feel that they're having the supports that they need, and, and yet there are many supports out there, and we can talk about that in a minute, I hope. Um, and then, you know, socially, I mean, for example, you know, somebody are either retired or if they're working and then they have to either give up their job or give up the uh, lifestyle that they were hoping for, in retirement, and then all of a sudden, instead of you know relaxing and spending time with their uh, other empty nester peers or their other uh, retired uh, friends, uh, they find themselves you know either registering a grandchild for school or going to sporting events and school events and pe- you know parent-teacher meetings and things like that. So it's a it's a very very uh, substantial commitment, and it can in a sense be alienating because. Their natural peer group, their social circle is not involved, and, and they, they're sort of free of those parenting responsibilities. And then conversely, when, you know, the grandparents who are parenting, you know, are involved in school activities, whether or going to the soccer field or whatever it may be, you know, it's less natural for them to connect with the other parents that are there. So it can definitely be somewhat... Uh, 
um, uh, somewhat of a challenge, and uh, it's, it, it can uh, uh, pose some difficulties. That said, and this is a very, very important positive message, when you look at parenting grandparents and, and you adjust for some of the difficulties in terms of less educated overall, less affluent overall, greater number of health issues, when you adjust for all those kinds of you know, adverse circumstances statistically, interestingly and positively, the parenting grandparents in, in some ways seem to be doing as well as parents in terms of connecting with uh, their grandchildren, you know, certain activities, the, 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 how they rate themselves as parents, and I think that's a positive message. So uh, I don't want to minimize the challenges, and I think that we need to remember that uh, oftentimes parenting grandparents do have greater uh, challenges and differ from parents overall, but many grandparents are doing well, and I think they just need a little bit more support and uh, awareness uh, in terms of some of the, the, the resources that are out there to help them. Yeah, they need the grand family guidebook uh, to help them, right? Uh, but maybe the challenges. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say sure the, the challenge. The challenges are different. Maybe you know they're they're different for the, the but there are still challenges. But there are challenges for parenting as well. I mean, I have three children, grown children, and three grandchildren, and there are. Uh-huh. Big differences in terms of what those challenges are. Not that I'm responsible for the grandchildren, but um, yeah. So there are different kinds of challenges for parents and grandparents. There's one thing that you didn't mention, and I was just curious whether you um, were uh, actually addressed it in your research. But what about the relationship? You kind of touched on it. The relationship between the grandparents, because, you know, once your kids are grown and out of, you know, and gone, then you have an opportunity to work on your relationship with your partner. And that's sort of, I would think, would may tend to get lost again because of, you know, the responsibility of taking care of the grandchildren. Well, uh, you bring up a very good point, Catherine, and, and you're right. Um, in some instances, this can pose a challenge. So if uh, you have uh, two grandparents and they're raising uh, one or more grandchildren, it can sometimes pose uh, a strain not just on finances, but it can sometimes pose a strain on uh, the relationship between the two grandparents themselves. Uh, you know, the, the impact can be widespread. I mean, you, know, you also have grandparents who now have a different relationship with some grandchildren than other grandchildren. Um, and that can, you know, then be, lead to either resentment or jealousy or just, you know, less quality time that those grandparents have. You know, if, you know as with your intro, when you talk about grandparents more typically, you know, baking cookies together or going to the, the park or the zoo or just having fun time, you know, now all of a sudden, uh, grandparents, at least for one or more of their, their grandchildren, now also have to be the disciplinarians. They're the ones that have to make sure homework is being done. They're the ones that, you know, are there 24-7, even when the children are having meltdowns or, or whatever it may be. So, so, it, so it, there, are, there are challenges, uh, both in terms of, you know, finances. There are, it can pose challenges in terms of um, relationships with, within the, 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 either the marriage or, or, or partner in terms of grandparents, and it can also pose challenges for the other children and grandchildren. That said, and this is in another important, more positive note, is that when we ask the grandparents, uh, the parenting grandparents, and in my own study of the 700-plus grandparents, you know, uh, we didn't hear from any parent, a grandparent that they regretted their decision, and they saw themselves as playing such an important role 
in the uh, rearing of their grandchild and knowing you know what the options were and knowing where the child was coming from in terms of uh, for whatever reason uh, that you know grandchild you know uh, was taken away from the parents or the parents weren't able to meet the needs of that child the grandparents themselves felt very very good and, and you know this is a, obviously a major uh, undertaking it's a it's a profound uh, commitment and can have profound implications at many levels as we've talked about but but consistently the grandparents the ones that we heard from felt good about their decision um, and interestingly by the way you know there's often this presumption by grandparents well they're just going to do this for a few weeks or they're going to do it for a few months and you know maybe the parent will clean up their act maybe they'll you know they'll get help maybe they'll you know uh, get into a some sort of substance abuse program, maybe the, when they get out of jail or maybe they come out of a rehab program, that they'll be in a better place to parent. And uh, occasionally that's the case, but more often than not, uh, grandparents are much more involved for a longer period of time than they originally thought. So it oftentimes is a life-changing, uh, long-standing, uh, per- somewhat permanent relationship. So it's not uh, just challenges, it's also the rewards. The rewards are great, is what you're saying. Are there ever any, and there must be, two set, let's say two sets of grandparents, and they're, they battle over who is go, you know, who's going to take care of the grandchildren? Or how does that work if you have in, in a scenario well, where you um, both sets want to take care of the grandkids? Well, uh, that would be sort of a lucky child in a sense if, if yeah. there are two sets of grandparents who are both so committed to that child that they both like to become the guardian uh, 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 grandparents. Uh, I, I don't know how often that happens. Uh, my guess is probably not that often. You know, certainly, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times uh, these are uh, single parents uh, or if you're talking about issues like substance abuse, for example, um, that, you know, the, unfortunately the father has the same uh, psychosocial challenges or medical uh, addictions that uh, the, the mother does. And, and so you can have interested or involved grandparents on two sides potentially, but uh, oftentimes that's not necessarily the case. Uh, I don't know that it comes up that often where you have grandparents vying for that custodial relationship um, for some of the reasons that we talked about. You know, in, in some ways or often... Uh, Grandparents may be the best option when you consider the the options, but um, I don't know that uh, grandparents are racing necessarily to take on this responsibility where they're where they're fighting over the grandchildren. I, I assume it happens occasionally, but but probably not too often. Not that frequently. Okay, Dr. Aisman, tell us. Let's talk about the children now because they're going to have issues too. And I think you talk about that, and obviously this come you bring these up in in your um, in your guide, but. How, the children, I mean, they're living with older people, older grandparents. That can be embarrassing to kids. Any, you know, that, you know, they they don't well, have young kids. Yeah, that's one issue I'm sure they have to deal with. And, you know, that could involve bullying from the other kids. You know, look how old your parents or your grandparents are. Uh, are they treated differently by teachers? I mean, there must be a lot of different kinds of issues for the kids themselves. Challenges right. and and the answer is you know you're right you know if uh, all the other parents on the sidelines are in their twenties and thirties and then you've got you know uh, the the parents uh, uh, the guardian parents of uh, one child that are in their you know sixties uh, realistically they are going to stand out and and they can make for some uh, perhaps awkward moments or self conscious moments depending on the child and the circumstances. 
Um, you know, we, we asked in, in my uh, study with the 700 plus parents, you know, we asked the grandparents, a parent and grandparents, we, you know, we asked them, you know, did they feel welcomed by the teacher? Did they have trouble helping their children with homework? You know, technology, obviously. Uh, parents, younger, you know, younger uh, adults are, are more techno savvy and more comfortable, not just with the web and, and email, but social media and the like, but also just even in terms of, you know, uh, uh, education and, and uh, likely helping with homework. So, you know, there can be challenges on a day-to-day basis uh, for parenting grandparents, and, and these were acknowledged to some extent. But overall, uh, grandparents thought that, uh, at least in the school setting, that the teachers and school personnel uh, were receptive, and I think that, you know, the grandparents were feeling like they were able to step up to the plate and, and be accepted in general. Again, I don't want to be too rosy or... or uh, uh, ignoring likely realities in some settings. I think the other point is that, that you know, the children themselves um, can sometimes be a little bit more of a handful. And one of the uh, nice things about that second study that I referenced where we had a comparison group where we had nationally representative data and we had the two groups, the 1,250 parenting grandparents and the 44,000 uh, uh, parents to compare. And we looked at the children themselves there was a higher incidence of behavior problems in the, among the children who were being raised by their grandparents. Um, and, and this is, as I said, after we sort of statistically controlled for things like poverty and, and uh, education of the parent or grandparent and the like. So there's a higher incidence of ADHD, a little bit higher incidence of behavioral challenges. Uh, when you control for those psychosocial variables, the grandparents thought they were doing a good job and, and in spite of those behavioral challenges, but they can be a little bit more behaviorally challenging. And, and, you know, and whether that's because of purely psychosocial factors or whether it's because of some you know, medical risk factors, and we do know that you know, drugs and alcohol uh, exposure prenatally are risk factors for uh, ADHD. And so whether it be uh, cocaine, whether it be even cigarettes or certainly alcohol, uh, they can all predispose and put a, uh, a, an unborn child at increased risk for ADHD. So we know that these are more common uh, in households where you have parenting grandparents, but relatively speaking, uh, uh, the grandparents, uh, when we controlled for many factors, seem to be doing pretty well. So there are challenges, not to ignore them, but, but grandparents uh, are doing well. Um, Let's I talk think about it is that. important. Yeah, yep. I just want to, yeah, I'm going to interrupt for a second because I, um, what about, you know, we've been talking about the challenges and the difficulties with, you know, uh, grandparents raising uh, grandchildren, but what about, are there any, and give us maybe some anecdotal um, examples of where grandparents have some added benefits, that there are certain things, you know, what are the added benefits of being raised by your grandparents? Um, Because there must be some. It doesn't all have to be necessarily challenging or negative or things you have to overcome, but there may be additional kinds of support or relationship issues that, you know, are... um, make it a very positive experience and a different experience in a very positive way, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. Well, I think first of all, um, and and actually it's a wonderful question, so thanks for asking it. Um, You know, realistically, uh, in most households, uh, parents uh, may be stressed in terms of, you know, working. We have more and more uh, single parents who are working, or we have two-parent households where both parents are working, and so there's the stress of a job, stress of an outside major commitment 
that can certainly uh, at times distract and certainly put a strain or stress on either relationships or just in terms of meeting daily needs. And so if you have grandparents who are retired, um, uh, you know, there may be a different financial situation, but the reality is uh, oftentimes these grandparents do have the time to make the commitment and uh, do, uh, you know, be available to the grandchild. And, and that's certainly a, a plus. Um, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, it can be, you know, life-changing and certainly grandparents can find themselves in a daily routine different from what they envisioned for their uh, senior years or their retirement uh, years. But the flip side of it is the grandchild can be the beneficiary because the grandparents can now have a renewed sense of purpose. They can be dedicated to their parenting responsibilities toward that grandchild or grandchildren. And, and they have, if perhaps not as many financial resources, they have the resources of time to give the love and attention uh, that the, those young children need. So I think that's just on the emotional side uh, can uh, make a, a difference. Um, certainly if they see that grandchild uh, having come from adverse circumstances, either child abuse or neglect in one form or another, you know, they may see the uh, child as being that much more needy and that much more attentive and, and caring and giving, trying to make up for, you know, the, 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 either the sins of the parents, so to speak, or, or certainly the neglect or, or adverse uh, background that that child has come from. So I think that, you know, emotionally, uh, grandparents are going to have the maturity, hopefully a little bit of wisdom of the ages, uh, the maturity, the, the time to dedicate to their grandchild, and, and hopefully they're doing it knowingly, and, and uh, although, as I said, you know, it can end up sometimes being a more enduring relationship than they might imagine, but at the same time, as I, as I mentioned, it can also be a, a much more rewarding relationship, and, and so I think that those are some of the positives. And, and I'll add, I think patience, or I'll speak in my, my experience when I'm taking care of or babysitting for the grandchildren, I have a lot more patience, I think, than I did with my own mm-hmm. kids. Uh, yeah, and that, mm-hmm. that's, yeah. Uh, what about finances? Maybe we only have a few more minutes left because that, that is an issue, as you mentioned. I mean, are there resources for grandparents who need financial help if they are the sole supporters of their, of their grandchildren? Yeah, there are many uh, types of support, uh, you know, financial support for parenting grandparents. Some of, it, some of them are federal, and then some of them uh, vary by state. And, and the best thing I can, uh, you know, suggest to your listeners is to go to uh, sort of the website RaisingYourGrandchild.org. Uh, and at that website, RaisingYourGrandchild.org, uh, 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 any of your interested listeners can find out more about uh, this topic in general, and we have a resource link there, and there we take uh, viewers to state-specific information so that anybody can find out what are the kind of supports that are available, uh, and, it, and it's very state-specific. So I strongly recommend uh, families uh, or listeners go to RaisingYourGrandchild.org. Uh, the federal government recently passed uh, a new federal legislation, and one of the goals of that legislation is to make uh, more information available and to make it easier for grandparents, parenting grandparents, to find out the kind of supports that exist. And uh, progressively, I think uh, now uh, there are some good websites to help, and I think uh, in the next few months it's gonna be, that information is going to become more and more accessible. 
And specifically, your book can be bought online, I assume, Amazon. Yep. Uh, yeah. It can uh, be bought uh, at Amazon. It's probably the cheapest place to buy it. Uh, so the Grand Family Guidebook. And, and in the book itself, we have a very robust appendix where we do provide a lot of information that's state-specific. And But beyond that information, which you can get for free online, you know, the book really gives uh, parenting grandparents lots of specific advice about how to deal with situations, how to deal what to tell your child, uh, your, I'm sorry, the, what to tell your grandchild, how to address questions, how to uh, negotiate what can sometimes be a stressful relationship with the parent because it's not always a slam dunk that everyone feels good about the parent, the grandparents raising that grandchild. We talk about, you know, just you know, the kinds of common problems that you know, grandparents need to be mindful of in terms of their own health, but also in terms of the, their grandchild's health. So the, the book covers myriad different subjects in terms of medical, legal, psychosocial, uh, behavioral, and, and, of course, financial. So, you know, the Grand Family Guidebook is intended to be sort of a, a one-stop shop for grandparents, parenting grandparents, and others who are caring for uh, in a kinship placement to get that kind of information. And certainly uh, the website, raisingyourgrandchild.org, will be another uh, resource for families to go to to get information. Great. Great having you on the show today. Um, Obviously, a very interesting topic and yeah, an important topic. And uh, I'm going to mention the book again, The Grand Family Guidebook, Wisdom and Support for Grandparents Raising Grandchildren. And we've been talking to Dr. Andrew Adisman, MD, pediatrician. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah. I appreciate it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com.
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dana Bowman, professor and humorist and author of How to Be Perfect Like Me. From the moment their children are born, mothers are under tremendous pressure to be perfect. Living up to these kinds of expectations is challenging enough without also having to manage the coping mechanisms we employ to handle this kind of pressure. For moms who struggle with alcoholism, parenting can prove to be especially challenging. Dana Bowman candidly details these struggles in her new book, offering comic relief and encouragement to moms seeking a coping mechanism for the day-to-day expectations and monotonous schedules of family life. She draws on her hilariously relatable experiences to guide readers to insightful conclusions. Uh, Dana Bowman is the creator of MomsyBlog.com and leads workshops on writing and addiction while parenting young children. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dana. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you, it, I read your book, like I told you before we actually got on the air. Uh, it Aww. is exactly as I described it. It's so it very, really, it is funny. Um, and I'm a mom having raised three boys, so I related to a lot of it. Uh, yeah. But then, I'll, yeah. So, um, <laughs> where do you want to begin? Let's talk about... <laughs> I began uh, when I was a child. Yes, okay. <laughs> Started out as a child. Yes. Okay. That's the very beginning. And then it sort of all started when you became a mom. Let's fast forward, right? To, oh, yeah. Uh, here you are a mom with these yeah, two boys. Me, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Let me explain the addiction part of it for me. Um, I am a mom in recovery. And, oh, I think it was 2011 um, was when I decided to get sober I was probably, you know, drinking addictively for a good 20 years prior to that, um, but very uh, on the down low. Like, I think this is very common with moms. Um, I was not out, like, dancing on tables. In fact, I have a chapter in my first book where it's called I Never Danced on Tables, and it was kind of this whole, like, what? Like, if I was going to be an alcoholic, why didn't I at least get to go to... Vegas and like, you know, get a tattoo on my face or whatever, but I didn't. I was very highly functioning and I kept everything kind of even keeled as much as I thought I could and drank um, pretty addictively, but not, you know, not blacking out, not getting arrested for some good 20 years. And then once I had... How did you do that? I want to stop there because I think there are (laughs) a lot of women in that position. But so I want to be really specific. How did you do that for 20 years? Yeah, you weren't blacking out. You weren't in jail. But how did you manipulate it so that you could hide what you were doing? Here's the thing. I think most people think alcoholic. They hear that word and they think it's the guy on the street with the paper bag, you know, who's lost his home and family. And inevitably, it, that can happen, even to me. You know, I could have ended up on the street with paper bags, but there's a whole throng of us alcoholics that are drinking in a way that is addictive, but it's not this huge, dramatic booze fest every night. Um, it has to do with your soul and your mindset every time you pour that drink. What are the motives behind it? I do feel an alcoholic can maintain and sometimes not drink for like a whole week at a time and then be very proud of herself, i.e. me, like when I would get a cold or something, I'd be like, I don't have a problem, look at this, I'm not drinking, you know, like it doesn't really have to do with amount, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the wreckage of your life, 
but it has to do with what your soul is saying every time you pour that glass of wine or you make that gin and tonic. Why are you doing that? What's the deal behind it? What's the motivation? And what's the need there? And for me, I just always thought about alcohol. I was just constantly thinking, okay, so I have a party to go to tonight. You know, I'm going to have a couple drinks before because I'm too introverted and shy to handle it. I mean, it was just on my mind a lot, all the time. So it's kind of like people who who are overweight, who are always constantly thinking of dieting or I'm going to this party and how much can I eat or how much can I not eat or, you know, it's the same kind. Yeah. They go, it's called kind of like, um, sometimes they say, you know, you try to abstain and then you become what's called a dry drunk, which is basically you're still behaving like an alcoholic, but you're not drinking. And it's very dangerous behavior because for the highly functioning alcoholic, we can tell ourselves, as I did, I don't have a problem. I have a job. I am, you know, well coiffed. I have good hair. (laughs) I am not getting arrested. I was so an alcoholic. So that, mean, that, that continued for quite a long time. And then finally some things came along, and I'm kind of, I say this sort of with tongue-in-cheek, but I had my children, and they, like, blew me out of the water <laughs> because I was so into perfectionism and control, and then obviously you have babies, and they're like, hey, I'm here to run the show, and you are no longer in control. And it, it just took all those triggered behaviors and magnified them. And I started leaning more and more on my wine every night. And then before I knew it, I was drinking half a bottle to a bottle a night. And it just, within a year, I would say, it, um, it blew up on me. And hiding your bottles? Oh, yeah. Hiding, hiding. I mean, you get to a point where here I am, an intelligent 40-something woman, married. I'm a, I don't want to say like a pillar in the community, but gosh darn it, I was teaching at the college. I was you know, heading up Sunday school, I was volunteering, I would, you know, I just looked perfectly okay on the outside. And then I'm hiding hiding vodka in plastic bottles upstairs in my boots in my closet. So yeah, that's what, that's what happens. And it's not, you would be surprised how many women I'm hearing from that are saying, me too, me too. They're putting their bottles in their laundry room, because they can hide them there. Um, they're recycling them elsewhere. Like the the shame of taking the recycling out with all the clinking bottles. They're <laughs> they're taking them to other locations so they don't have to be a, a, a embarrassed by that. This is not. This is a phenomenon that's happening more and more. Is this a, you know, that's a, that was going to be my next question? Is it is it a new phenomenon or is it something that's because of our culture, because of the responsibilities and or isolation yeah. that nuclear family? I can think of a lot of different reasons, but uh, I want you to actually yeah tell me the numbers like, don't lie yeah. the numbers are telling us that alcoholistic alcoholistic oh that's my new word <laughs> <laughs> binge drinking behaviors amongst women especially women with little kids has gone up like some 80 percent okay so this is definitely increasing um alcoholism has been increasing amongst women we're closing the gap with men and have been for many years but here's the deal that's just the reported incidences. No woman in her right mind who's a mom is probably going to self-report. I think there's a lot more out there. In fact, that's what I get every day in my email box. You know, I have a problem. I can't tell anyone, though, because we're so ashamed. We're moms. How can we do this, right? But that's that double-edged sword. We're moms. 
we have all this pressure and expectation loaded upon us. And I do, I do kind of feel like we are, we are raising children in the day and age of um, parenting on display. You know what I mean? Like, I know what you mean. I think no, you mentioned like Facebook print. You, uh, you mentioned oh, that. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah. Like, talk to and us about that. You know, because social media you is see not these, the devil, yeah. but it, ha- it has certainly stirred this pot quite a bit. Yeah, you look at families or you look at anybody on Facebook and it's sometimes I can't look at it because especially if I'm not yeah. in a, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, you know, I'm not in a good place. I don't want to see everybody's great family trip right. or, you know, perfect kids and perfect husband, perfect job, all those well, kinds it, of things. It, it was so hard for me because I had, I had postpartum depression with both of my boys and when they were, when they were newborns and I was so confused because I kept hearing Oh, aren't you just so in bliss? You newborn baby, and you're just glowing with motherhood. And I'm like, I'm not glowing. I'm miserable. I want to die. I don't, and I can't tell anybody this because it's really not the message that I was getting um, back. That that was, you know, that was not the norm, and I was not okay. And so I just kind of kept my mouth shut about it, and then self-medicated when I could. Do you think it's more difficult for, say, women like you who are talented, smart, uh, good jobs, as you described yourself, and you get into this, per- like, besides perfectionism, like control, you're used to controlling yeah. your life, you're not, not in all, you know, and so when you get kids, it's totally an out of control situation. So you've kind of done a 180 and you're, it's yeah. something different than, let's say, maybe generations ago where women had their babies in their early 20s. So they never even had those kinds of experiences of being outside of the home and being successful and doing, uh, being professionals. So their expectations were different. Yeah. So much, well, I don't want to say worse. I think different. Different. Because I know that there were plenty of issues with alcoholism with like people from my mom's generation and such, and people just didn't talk about it. And that was also tragic. I do feel like it's, we're turning a tide, and I'm so grateful because I feel like it, when, I, when I started really drinking addictively, that was, again, that's like back in the 2010s, and I really got on, interested in Facebook at that time for me because I was just starting to stay home with my kids. And I, really, I think that at that time, around 2010 or so, was when the whole Facebook funny wine culture meme thing started to really take off. You know, those funny pictures about, you know, <laughs> you're the reason I drink with the little wine bottle and it's mommy's wine time and all that. And I love that because it was a way to say, okay, you're okay. Like, you're totally miserable and despondent at five o'clock, but it's okay because other moms are saying it's okay to drink. And then that has gone on for about 10 years now. And finally, and I'm starting to see this more and more on social media, like with my job and my writing, and there's a lot of other moms out there that are kind of ganging up and saying, no, this is not okay. Like, we need to stop normifying this wine culture thing and, um, and speak up about it. And it is slowly, I think, turning around. Wasn't it, in the book, in your book, wasn't it one of your boys who sort of got your attention, who um, made you realize that you were drinking too much and that the kids, yeah. or that he realized it, and here's this just this little yeah. guy? It was uh, what so did he say? Terrifying. <laughs> so terrifying. Um, such a, it was such a sad moment, too, because I didn't stop 
at that point, but um, my son, Henry, was probably, oh, and I'm horrible with time. Like, if you ask me how old they are now, I can barely tell you, but he was probably two-ish, and I'll never forget it. You know when your kid looks at you and they're kind of scared, but they want to please you, so they have this, like, I don't know how to explain it, but he had this really uncomfortable smile on his face, like, the smile was saying to me, Mommy, please be okay. Please be someone I can trust. Please be normal. But he was smiling because he wanted to make it okay. And he said, that's your special drink, isn't it? And he could not have known. I had it in a cup that, I, I, honestly, I, I think it was a God thing. Because he, I don't think he'd ever seen me pour anything. I don't think he even knew what alcohol was. But he knew somehow, and it was a truly weird and horrific moment for me. And when I think about it, I get chills because I think he knew somehow that kid knew that mom was not available, mm-hmm. you know, and how horrifying that must be for a little kid to know she's here in the house, but she's a ghost. She's a ghost. So that was a defining so. moment. And, but even given that, and you, obviously this a big part of the book is that you're, you were in recovery once, but then yes. you relapsed relapsed and that was terrifying um and another piece i want to bring in your your father also because we hadn't talked about that he's in recovery he has a drinking Mm -hmm. problem but he never relapsed so this was a whole uh this was another well you define it it didn't have to be defined as a failure but it was a, a huge issue to be able to now, yeah. In, yeah, so let's talk about that because that's tough. Yeah, my dad's in recovery has been for some, oh gosh, 40 years and 40 years. And he, he's like John Wayne. I mean, he's just, he's had it, he, he had it large and in charge, recovery from day one. And so I kind of aimed for that because I've always wanted to make my dad happy and please him. And, and that's kind of part of why there was a lot of reasons why the relapse happened. But also I can just tell you, I'll tell you why the relapse happened is because I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Um, But at any rate, he never relapsed. And so when I did, I was like doubly sad because I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have failed and I have failed him and I'm a failure and I'm a big faily, 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 you know, just, yeah. Really, really you sad messed up. I, I messed up and I, I had been super sobriety girl with like the high fives and good jobs and, and then I just totally messed up. But you know what? It was the best thing because even my recovery initially, like for those first three years, I kind of had gotten to a place where I'm like, I got this, you know, and you can't get there. That's, I think we all have things in our lives that we need to surrender and not, it's just not about alcohol. It's about control. Mm-hmm. And there are times when we just need to accept that we are going to screw up on the daily. Like I, as a parent, I mess up daily, you know, it's humiliating. And if you keep trying to medicate that or ignore it or smush it down or shove it away, as opposed to just looking at it, it will lead to some behaviors that will harm you. That, that's what happened to me. What about treatment? AA, counseling, both? What helped you the most? For me, I, I started attending 12-step group meetings almost daily at the beginning. I did not attend rehab, and I, at this point, I look back, I'm like, I kind of 
wonder if I should have, maybe the relapse wouldn't happen, but you know, so what? Like, I can look back. I know rehab can be really, really good, you know? I also know people have gone to rehab multiple times. <laughs> but I, I just attended group meetings, and I made sure I got into a counselor. In fact, my husband forced me to do counseling. It was one of the times where he t- stood his ground because I really didn't want to go to a counselor. I whined about it and said, it'll help. He's like, I don't care. It'll help us to know that you're doing it. Let's start. Let's at least start. You know, let's try. And he was extremely helpful, too, because he even wanted, he went with me sometimes. I know that a, a lot of cases with moms, especially, that sometimes the spouse is not supportive or wants to keep drinking in the house or has some issues of his or her own, you know. And I think I statistically, isn't it true, and I don't know if uh, that men tend not to be, don't stay uh, and aren't supportive necessarily if their wives or their partners have a drinking problem where the opposite yeah. women tend to stay it, it's it's a uh, with men yeah, who have a drinking a sad problem statistic i i don't know what it is about that i think there might be kind of a <clears throat> a pride issue involved like you're not going to tell me i can't have alcohol if, if they like to drink um i will tell you this a lot of times when you have an alcoholic in the house you might very well have another one too or you have someone who also drinks with some bad maybe wacky behaviors involved. So a lot of time when one person gets well or starts to get well, the other person does not like this because they want to be able to have the person with them. You know, you don't like to drink alone. So I was kind of an anomaly because I have heard about a lot of cases where the the wives are like, yep, he still drinks and it's still in the house. And we've talked about that. Like, what do you do? Do you at least ask him to take it out to the garage? Is it... Because I do think... If you have an actively drinking person in your house and you are trying to get into recovery, I mean, that's really hard. And that's a lot, you know, I get it. It's a lot to ask of your spouse to maybe abstain or whatever, but that's marriage. Like, Well, marriage in social work terms, you call it sometimes and, the enabler, the person who is enabling. I mean, that's one of yeah. the, that's a, yeah, and that's kind of, I think, what you're maybe alluding to or, um, yeah has some kind of an emotional need for their partner to keep on drinking, whatever it happens to mm-hmm. be. But It's very common. Yeah, and what about your husband? Because we, you just touched on it, but your relationship, he obviously stuck by you or with you. So what was going yeah. on with him the whole time and your relationship while you were drinking, then recovery, then relapse, recovery again? How was the relationship with him going? What was happening? Well, it was quite, <laughs> it was quite the ride. Um, but... I will say at the beginning, like when we first got married, we were older. We got married at 36. We always joke that we were nearly dead because <laughs> nobody gets married at 36. Um, but we were kind of set in our ways. And so that was tough. Our first year of marriage was really, really tough. We moved. We switched jobs. Everybody was just in chaos. It was a tough situation. Um, so we And we drank together a lot. That was actually one of the hardest things because I didn't go out and party. I wasn't one of those that was going out to drink. I stayed home and watched Netflix and drank by myself or with Brian. And it was really hard to let go of that and change that dynamic because that was our thing. Our Friday night thing was to connect over a glass slash bottle (laughs) of wine. But he was supportive. And I I do think his faith played a lot into that, my, my faith as well. He really leaned on that and tried to both of us kind of write the train that we both saw was you know, going off the rails. 
I am super lucky in that regard. Um, but I will say at the beginning, he was a total, like before I stopped drinking, he was an enabler. It's very common because he just, he just didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't want to hurt my feelings. It's hard to look at someone and say, whoa, like you're completely slosh. What's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> and it's embarrassing. And so he didn't really, and I asked him later about it. He's like, yeah, I knew. And I just would pray about it and pray about it. But I think he tried to bring it up at least twice in our marriage and it did not go well. Big fights, lots of denial, lots of crying on my part, you know, how could you and all that. And he even would hide the alcohol occasionally, but then I would go find it. That's when I really realized, I'm like, huh, I might have a problem here because I'm out in a car trunk finding wine bottles that he had hid away. But, um, but then once I got into recovery, he was very supportive. He, he helped with the scheduling, with getting to meetings. But I will tell you, when the relapse happened, that's when he finally got mad. And I talk about it in the book, and we have this huge, colossal fight. And it's one of those moments where I realized, you know what, he has every right and could legally take my children. Like we could, this marriage could be ending and he could take my kids. And it was terrifying to me. And I, I didn't, he never said that. He never like threatened that, but it was but really. But you felt it, yeah. Oh yeah, it's a terrifying moment. And then, and he got mad and I'm glad he did because I think he finally was like, the, and the relapse was enough to make anybody mad. It made me mad. Um, he said, he's like, why, why would you do this? You know, you had it and then you just threw it away. And that's what relapse is like. It, when you're done, when you come back from it, which hopefully you do, it's really hard to, and you look at what you threw away. It's so hard to stay sober because you just feel like such a, you have to start over and it's so, ugh. it's a slog. One, but. We only have a couple minutes left, so we want everyone to go out and read your book. Um, but, but, but I just have one quick question. What, how often do you have to, do you go, let's say to AA? Do you go every day? Uh Um, do you go how many times a week? Um, how does that work? I try to now hit a meeting once a week. Um, sometimes I go twice. I have friends who go every day. I can't do it. I've just got, you know, that, well, that's the other thing too, with this whole cultural push towards moms and drinking, um, it's really hard for us to <laughs> go into recovery. I mean, we're the ones out in the minivan, right? Going to soccer yeah. games and blah, blah, blah. But you do still have to say this is important. And if you need to, then you should find, you know, find a way to go every day. But I just go about once or twice a week. I'm also connecting, though. I have uh, Facebook groups and some apps where um, I'm talking and texting and videoing with people in recovery every day. Every so you day have mom, Momsy Block Dog. I, I hate to interrupt you because it's it's so interesting, oh, but I I just want to give give us the websites we that uh, we can yeah. go to, yeah, because we only have two minutes left, so that okay. people my, can. My, yeah, it's always funny how this time flies. Uh, I know. Okay. So my blog is Momsy Blog. It's all M O M S I E B L O G dot com. You can find me there, and my handle, if you want me on Twitter or Facebook, is just Momsy Blog. And that's where you can find out about my books. You can also get my book, um, How to Be Perfect Like Me and Bottled. They're both available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today and sharing your story, Dana Bowman, How to Be Perfect Like Me. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Catherine. Bye. Bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 